0: Welcome, and thank you for joining the Unbiased Label Podcast, where we believe labels belong on clothes, not people. On this podcast, we have real talk focused on all things fashion and culture with a critical global perspective at the intersection of industry and academia. I'm your host, Zara Karutz and my personal relationship to fashion began as a little girl who came from a working class immigrant family in New York. Fashion and culture became my academic passion. A lot of people associate fashion with words like vapid or shallow, but really, fashion holds a lot of power and can be used to hold deep conversations with meaning. Fashion is a visual and material reflection of society, and is a complicated system of communication that shapes belonging, identity, memories, fantasy, and emotions. Unbiased Label Podcast is an audio passion project. Our mission is to help make the world more equitable. We celebrate kindness, inclusivity, and freedom from power imbalances.
1: I learned about gay men in particular. It can't be a hundred divas in the room. <laughs> it can be a hundred divas in the room. It can be only one diva who commands the whole room.
0: That's interesting.
1: I come. Give me the lead microphone. Let me sing my song.
0: I like that though. That's a good strategy.
1: And at least they know that you were there.
0: That's correct. And you have your moments and you're fine with yourself. Yes. You know, these are lessons for life. This is so much good wisdom (laughs) on how to navigate the world and be who you are and be how you want to be. You're right.
1: You don't give up everything. You just give a little taste of it.
0: This episode is a conversation with New York-based visual artist Beau McCall, a.k.a. The Button Man. Beau creates wearable and visual art by applying clothing buttons into mostly upcycled fabrics, materials, and objects that generate discussions around pop culture and social justice. Bo has also created an upcycle fashion line called Triple T-Shirts. The work of Beau McCall has been featured by the New York Times, Associated Press, NPR, and LA Times, to name a few. In addition, he has served as a teaching artist at the Newark Museum of Art, the New York Public Library, and the Harlem Arts Alliance. Bo's visual and wearable art has been included in many exhibitions and is held in the permanent collections of public and private individuals including the Museum of Art and Design in New York, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, Victoria and Albert Museum in London, the Museum at FIT, to name a few. And in 2021, Bo released his debut artist book titled Rewind, Memories on Repeat, which is a book commissioned and published by Shine Portrait Studios that honors the legacy of 10 of McCall's deceased friends through collages composed of archival photos and images from his button artwork. The collages capture the late 1970s to mid-1980s from Philadelphia to New York during the LGBTQ plus rights movement at the height of disco music and the AIDS crisis. In 2024, Beau will debut his first ever retrospective titled Beau McCall, Buttons On, at Fuller Craft Museum. Please join me as I talk with Beau about his places of importance, his cultural relevancy throughout the decades, and his perspective on life as an artist. This conversation took place earlier this year over Zoom in New York. Now on to the conversation. I hope you enjoy. Where are you now? Are you in Harlem?
1: I'm in Harlem right now. I live in
0: Harlem. As I was looking through a lot of your work, place seems to be an important reoccurring theme for you. Place, people. Hearing about your growing up in Philly mm-hmm. and talking about place, I think you talked about before you grew up in the Philly projects. Yes. And that was such a positive experience for you. Harlem, where that was a place. Yes. Such an important part of you and the people that you connected there. So, place and people. We can't, mm. we'll get into the people, but place is the first thing that sort of jumps out.
1: I was born and raised in Philadelphia. I grew up in the projects when they were new. It wasn't the same stigma as it has today. When you say projects today, people are in fear, people think of welfare, people think of underprivileged people. When I grew up in the projects, they were relatively new. All the people who lived in there was two parents. Most of us went to Catholic school. If we didn't, you know, we went to, um, the public school was the right of Across the street from us, uh, elementary school, Hawthorne. And on the opposite corner was Bartlett, which was the junior high school.
0: Is the project Um, still a relative term? How
1: do you feel about that term? Well, when I lived there, I'm old school. So that's how I would refer to it. But now people refer to it as public housing. We just called it the projects. It was a great experience. You know, everybody knew everybody. Everybody's parents knew everybody. You knew people by their first and last name. So if they said that's Bo, they would say, oh, that's Bo McCall Mm. or uh, that's Denise Bolden or whoever it would be. You knew their full name and you knew their parents and didn't lock the doors. We went in and out of each other's apartment. We had a porch that connected us by this fence. And, you know, we'd be out and we'd see each other every day and we would just carry on like this one big family. And of course, um, some folks were closer than other folks, but for the most part, it was just this one big family where everybody knew everybody and everybody got along. But we got around to the seventies, the tables kind of turned.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Cause the way, the way I viewed it, they stopped screening the people, how they had initially screened the people when they, the first wave of people who came through. How so? What do you mean by that? How so? The families got a little rougher. So a lot of turmoil started happening within the building. And you then the maintenance and the upkeep uh, wasn't quite the same as when we first moved in there.
0: Yep. Right. So do you feel like you're part of your formation of who you are, your foundation, is your family, your neighborhood, your church?
1: Yes. Yeah. I consider myself to be a, a sheltered child. There was a point in my early 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 years, I was afraid of everything and everybody. Really. Like I'm I'm all I did was I went to school. I came home, you know, I socialized with the people who lived in my my building. My bre- my middle brother was the one who was really outgoing. Like everybody knew him. And they would just say um Oh, that's guy's brother, Bo. Or that's Bo, <laughs> guy's brother. You know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah.
1: I was oldest. It was like he had to star in Bill. Like I was second fiddle to him. It was just um, trying to adjust and figure out what my place was as a child, as a, as a son, as a brother, as a cousin. It, it was kind of awkward for me because I was the oldest, and I didn't know where I fit in, and I felt like I didn't have a role model to yep. mold myself after.
0: It's interesting that you're saying this, Bo, because how do I say this? You you've said things like Philly became too conservative, and so oh, you yeah. have to break through. So there's this identity. What you're talking about is you're you're coming from a conservative. Background into now you're figuring out your identity of who you are, and it's in this era where I mean, there's so much happening culturally, and you become this amazing cultural tastemaker. So, for you to be so prolific now and have such an impact on culture and fashion, to say you didn't start this way,
1: reflecting back now in 1967, a lot of things changed. You had the hippies, yep. music. Change The Black Panthers came into prominence. It was just a whole lot of things was going on.
0: The sexual revolution.
1: Yes. Women's lib and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, subtly I was paying attention to this stuff as a kid. So it like I just shedded my uniform that I wore for capsule school. I didn't want to be that person anymore.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. I knew I wasn't a wild child. But I knew I had, um, I knew I I I could express myself visually in a different way. Mm-hmm. So you know, I used to bleach my pants. I may have been in the seventh or eighth grade, where during this time, you know, they didn't have the variations of different washes of jeans. You either wore Levi's <laughs> or you wore Wranglers, and we wore Wranglers, right? And it wasn't until I, my grandfather took us to Detroit one summer, and they kept referring to um, blue jeans. They kept referring to them as jeans, where we just called them by their brand name. I'm gonna get a new pair of Wranglers. So I thought it was kind of odd. Like they keep calling these pants jeans. Like what? <laughs> I thought it was kind of odd because I haven't, I had never heard the terminology. But then as time went on, it was like, oh, those are jeans. Okay, yeah. I've been. All along, you know what I mean. So I started getting into my rock star look, where I start wearing platforms, bell bottoms, the tight pants, um, the little sash belts with the fringes and the stuff on them. And then I remember the first music that I really gravitated to, uh, my first musical idol was Sly Stone. And w- what attracted me to Sly was. It was multicultural. Women in the group, they were black, they were white. The sound was totally different from a straight R&B.
0: Music clearly is throughout your work as well. Place, people, and music, they're all kind of in this melting pot Mm -hmm. together. So was it music influencing your fashion and your style at this time?
1: It was my parents. It was your parents. My dad was a metrosexual before the term came out.
0: Oh, how so?
1: My my dad, if he was going out, he was always groomed. He always had a fresh haircut. He always kept his, his nails manicured. He would file his fingernails. He would paint his nails clear. The way he shaved, like, we would be in the bathroom if he was getting dressed. And we'll watch my dad shave, you know, watch him put his undergarments on, he was very, very stylish. And then he used to be in this club called the Paysetters, right? And they were a group of stylish Black men. And their um, their uniform remind me of a big band. Because some of the big bands back in the day, they wore these blazers and then they had a crest.
0: Right, right,
1: right. So they had their Paysetters crest on the pocket. And then they took their club pictures with all the guys all his friends his, his um his club members in this this outfit um i don't know where he was going he was going to a formal and it was the first time i seen a man wear the patent leather shoes with the bows on them yep like i was like oh my god like you know where they come from um then when he would put his pants on men don't do it today he would hold one leg and put his the first leg, his left leg in. And then when he would get ready to put the right leg and he would drop the right leg and then he would put the pants on, right? Men don't do that today.
0: <laughs> How do men do it these days?
1: Right? They just put the pants on, they just <laughs> put them on.
0: There's no ceremony. No.
1: And I thought that was kind of interesting. So when we would, mainly for Easter and back to school clothes, we used to go to this place called Craft Brothers, right? And we go in and they had the tailors and all that stuff on the premise. Now we we like in elementary school, we like seven, eight, nine, but I knew early on what a tailor was for. So we would get our suits and they will be tailored to fit our bodies. Right. So when I became an adult and I met certain people and we would go out and we would buy things and I would say, you have to go to a tailor to get that done. And they were like, a tailor for what? I'm like, you gotta get your pants messaged. You have to pull the waist in. You have to pull the jacket and You have to do pull the sleeves and to fit it according to your body type. So I took a friend of mine to my tailor at the time. So we go in. I said, you you have to go in the booth and change. So he goes in the booth and change. And when he comes out, he just stands there. I'm like, you have to stand on the platform where the mirror is so we can <laughs> you know, measure you.
0: <laughs> you got this so,
1: from your dad. Yeah. Yeah. So he yeah. looked at me like, like, how do you know this? I said, from my dad, because he he would take us and we would get our suits tailored to our right. That's right. Then my mom, my mom was also very stylish. Okay. Um, Very um, minimal. A minimal? Yeah, like um, it's this picture that I just created of her, one of my favorite pictures of my mom. She, She had an Afro, she had a short Afro, and she had this black v-neck dress on. It, 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 I think it came right below her knees, maybe like two, maybe two-inch slits on the side. But the dress was very classy. It was plain, and it was sexy. Yeah. All she had on was these big, flat um, circle earrings. It was Ooh. like a dip.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: That's all she needed—no jewelry, just the earrings. And my mom liked shoes too.
0: The parents were very stylish people in their own right.
1: Yes, so I took a little bit from each of each of them and incorporated it to myself. Because even with we're getting back to the music, yeah, in my household. My parents only played jazz. I would never hear like um, Motown and, you know, all the music of today. If I wanted to hear that kind of music, I would go next door to my neighbors. Cause they, they were teenagers, they had the latest records, they had all the Motown, Smokey and the Marvelettes and all that kind of stuff. I would hear that in their house. But then when I would go back home, my dad thought he was Frank Sinatra. He knew all Frank Sinatra songs. So at this point in my life, I know. A pretty much <laughs> Frank's whole catalog. It's amazing. Uh, he listened to uh, Johnny Mathis and he listened to Nat King Cole and Joe Williams, Lambert Henderson Ross. I mean, I could just go on and on and on. Yeah. And
0: on. You know what's That era was so elegant and classy yeah, and beautiful. I think now part of the past gets lost. But that was a lifestyle. I mean, what you're talking about, even your dad putting his pants on the way that he did, that was, he lived that way. It's almost a form of dandyism now we talk about. Yes,
1: exactly. It's It's not just
0: the clothes, but it's your everything. It's your identity. Yeah, and then, you know, it was a time
1: wherein every man wore a hat. That's right. Right? Yeah. And then on Sundays... The women who went to church, they had the gloves that's right. and pocketbooks. And you, I'll explain the Cadillac to you later on. <laughs> but we called the pocketbooks Cadillacs because they were so huge.
0: <laughs> the pocketbooks, not the hats. Yeah, just the
1: pocketbooks. Yeah, pocketbooks. yeah. Okay. so yeah, they had their gloves, the hats, and the pocketbooks.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, okay. so again, yeah. like the era the the early part of the 60s was very chic yeah until the hippies came <laughs> the hippies opened up another door of freedom yes with the mini skirts the afros um the music changed. all Thanks. the rock and rollers uh you know elton john the beatles and i remember it was the time with the beatles any station that you turned on the radio because this was during the time where it was mainly AM radio. Right, right. You heard the Beatles all day, every day. the hour it went by that you didn't hear the Beatles.
0: It would be hard to understand the level of impact that they had on culture on a global scale mm-hmm. if you had not lived in that, I don't think.
1: Exactly. And then, you know, the flip side of that is Black folks had James Brown. And I, I remember, you know, still living in projects. Uh, one of my friends, his mother took all the kids to see James Brown. It was amazing.
0: So all of this sort of, the 60s was such a pivotal era of change, liberation. I mean, there was so much going on. And that really set the tone for the 70s and then the Vietnam War. I mean, it just kind of (laughs) propelled. And then when the 70s came, there was even more intensity of Blackness is beautiful. We saw Stephen Burroughs in the Battle of Versailles pushing this renaissance of culture.
1: I think, you know, each decade has its own youth culture.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: Youth culture. When I was in school, it was all about the Afro, right? But by the time I got out of school, um, you know, Black women were perming their hair. So they went back to straight hair again. And then the Jerry Carl came, (laughs) right? Yeah, that's true. When, when Janet Jackson did, um, oh, uh, I forget the mo- movie she was in. And she had those big, Poetic they justice. Braids. Poetic justice. And all the Black girls were wearing braids. But with Get the it. braids, it's closer to what we look like. It's closer to what grows out of our head.
0: Yeah.
1: It, it made sense to me. You know, so now it's all about lace fronts, and I call it the share hair, the part down the middle, and hair all the way down to your butt. Like, how many times again you do that look? Like, it's no individuality. Even back then, everybody had their own distinctive look. Yeah. Their own distinctive sound, their own distinctive style.
0: But don't you think that's why you're so needed now is because you are such an individual and a celebration of uniqueness that we, I, I think the younger generations perhaps don't know how, how to do it. So somebody like you that comes along and, and says, look, this is me and this is how I became me. This is my story that shows other generations how to perhaps become an individual.
1: But, you know, I think we, we have pockets of individuality, but as far as mainstream, I think that's a hard sell, even that's- to this day.
0: Even with social media, it's made it worse.
1: Yeah. And then, you know, it was a, a point in time where you had to um, discover what was bubbling underground. Like the rave situation, yes. um, the ballroom scenes. Right. All of that stuff was going on, but mainstream folks didn't know about it.
0: Although it was featured in the New York Times, like the, the you know, the ballroom.
1: Um, yeah. Well, now, I would consider it almost mainstream now. You just had Pose on, on TV. Yeah, now
0: it's spin. mainstream,
1: yeah. Yeah, ballroom. Yeah. When Madonna tried to put her spin on it, it kind of came and went. It exposed Right, the right. And then it died down again. And then, you know, it, it had a second win. It came back again.
0: That's
1: true. So, you know, I think all those pockets exist. They just don't exist on a mainstream level. Let right. me say, beauty goes from one spectrum to the next spectrum, right? Yes. And I remember when I first discovered Grace Jones, right? Oh,
0: yeah.
1: A lot of people that I was around, they thought she was ugly. Huh. Again, she was dark. She had no hair. And then her, her pre- when she first came out, she's really girly, really feminine, but still distinctive in her style. Right, And then when she got to um, Warm Leatherette and she got the box haircut and she was wearing Armani suits and all that stuff, to me, it was a threat. (laughs) It was a threat because she was powerful. Right. Yeah. Women could embrace that type of um, empowerment visually. So what what
0: made her able to, like, what... How did she overcome that challenge
1: to me I don't think um I think when you think of of when you when I think of Grace Jones I think it's some kind of goddess when she's gone there's no more there's no more replacing her it's just she's just one of a kind I don't think anybody can emulate what she does visually or m- musically she's she's she, she created a box of all of her own.
0: You're saying that she had pushback though in the beginning, she was not an icon or a figure of goddess.
1: She was not. I I remember seeing her on her first album. I saw her in this little club in Jersey. And she she came through the club on a motorcycle. She danced on top of the bar. It was a little tiny place, but I was like in awe of this creature. Like, who does this? And then, you know. I would read about um, some of the antics that Josephine Baker pulled, but Josephine Baker was like a showgirl with me. Mean. Yeah. You, you know what I'm saying?
0: So you think she, because she believed in herself or she had the audacity to just not I, care?
1: I think she believed in herself and I think that she had the balls to to pull off the things that she did. And then she also had uh um, mood that was fueling her. Like who? John Paul Good. He, he did most of her imaging. Style and fashion. It has a lot to do with confidence. Yeah, that's right. And if you don't have the confidence, you're not going to be able to walk out of your front de- door.
0: <laughs> you won't make it. <laughs>
1: you will not make it to the corner.
0: You won't. So that's
1: true. You have to tune everything and everybody out and think that, the world is all about you. I went to Radio City with one of my friends. I don't know what I had on this particular night. And he said to me, like in an in a irritated way, he said, you walked in here like you own the place. That's what I do. <laughs> Shit.
0: Yeah, you're That's right.
1: My, my thing with that is, is that um, when I realized, because early on in my life, I was very shy. Friends could dance and I I was not there. I didn't get that gene. Okay. When I realized that people like the way I dress, it opened up another door for me.
0: Interesting.
1: Um, If I couldn't start the conversation verbally, visually, I could get the conversation going because they wanted to know where I got so and so from, what made you want to wear this, where did you buy this from, where you get your magazines from, who who you buy shoes.
0: Right. It
1: started like that. So they would come in my circle. I didn't have to come outside of the circle. Oh,
0: that's interesting.
1: So once I learned the power of that, and then when I came across other people who were really stylish and they were at a, a different level because I was I was younger. So, you know, I'm I'm still creating, still building who I am. Um, it was people that I, I admire. So when I would go to certain places and you know, I would call it pulling scenes. You know, they would walk in the room and they would command the room. But I wasn't popular. I wasn't on that level yet. So I would come in, get my applause. Oh, you look great. You look beautiful. And then I would disappear. So that will be enough for me. Like uh-huh. I'm not. Anybody's light. Anybody's shine. Anybody's thunder. Just give me what I deserve. So I was like, Oh, did you see both songs? Song, song. Did you see Bo's on song, song? one more thing grace jones came to philly right and um me and tracy went to see grace um i got my hair cut like her i made my face like her i wore one of her outfits and when um this song get down on your knees and she would come off the stage and she would drag people all over the floor the people who was on her front row she demolished them in in their little armani suits and little skis eyes and all this. She just ruined their outfits, right? So we were like on the fourth row. So I looked at Tracy. I said, if she come in this row, I'm going, I'm going to stand up. So she came up to the row and I stood up and she, she looked at me and I looked at her. She said, darling, I love your hair. And she <laughs> ran out the aisle, and me and her had a little fight on the, on the floor. <laughs> wow. the, whole place, the whole place, the people who knew they were screaming my name out. I had such a rush. So when it was over there, it was like, oh my God, did you see Bo and Grace Jones fighting? And then I go back into hibernation again.
0: Because on the inside, you must be a diva, and so <laughs> you like to come out and have your diva moment and then go back into your shell.
1: Yes. <sighs> the thing I learned about gay men in particular, it can't be a hundred divas in the room. <laughs> Not be 100 divas in the room. It could be only one diva who commands the whole room.
0: That's interesting.
1: So I come and I do my stunt, and then you could have, and I call it the lead microphone. Give me the lead microphone, let me sing my song, and then right. you can have your mic. I
0: like that, though. That works.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That works. I like, that's a good strategy.
1: And at least they know that you were there.
0: That's correct. And you have your moments, and you're fine with yourself. Yes. You know, these are lessons for life. This is so much good wisdom (laughs) on how to navigate the world and be who you are and be how you want to be. You're right.
1: You don't give up everything. You just give a little taste of it. Like, classic example, to me, the downfall of Madonna. Yeah. When she did that sex book. Uh Uh-huh showed her whole entire nude body. There was no more mystery left. And then after that, it just, she to me, she faded away. And then she always relied on gimmicks. Like every one of her albums, she was a different nationality.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah.
1: You know. Mm-mm.
0: But it's interesting to me because your work is layered into all these other conversations. Mm-hmm of larger narratives and then you have your own narrative perhaps because your own narrative is so strong and stands on its own that people include you in your narrative Uh, when i first
1: came out of hibernation and, and i went back into doing art and i would sit back and listen to the statements that people would have behind their pieces and some of the stories that i would hear they just seemed like they was fabricated like they main stories to explain certain pieces I know at times when I'm creating you know dark initially with one idea with me going in one direction but as I'm dedicating more time and I'm my thought process is going into the work it could change and all of my pieces they're basically about me and my life yeah you know I can't relate to things that I haven't experienced. When certain um, exi- exhibitions come about and you find out what the topic is, and if I don't have anything to fit the topic and I have to create something, sometime I let it pass.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: I have to reflect in how I'm going to tell the story. Yeah. And I wanted to fabricate a story.
0: No, but you know what's so interesting? And I think this is what's hard to put into words. You're part of the culture, but You're just living your life and Mm -hmm. when you're in the moment and you're just doing what you do and your life is the reflection of what you're doing, you don't even see it that way and it's hard for people to even comment on it as you're doing it.
1: Yes, because when I first started working on the book, the book project, right, I, I kept saying to myself, I'm not that interesting. Like, I don't see myself like that, but you know, you don't know how others see
0: you. Right, that's right, exactly.
1: You know, and I can say, oh, I don't know if they're going to gravitate to these stories. And, you know, a lot of times I've read, you know, stuff about other people and personalities who are in the LGBT community, and it just seemed like the drama It's just so interesting. And I don't feel like I've had that type of drama in my life.
0: I don't think it's drama, though. I don't think you have to have drama. I just think it's everyone has a different story. And I kind of think that you're kind of like Andy Warhol in a sense. I'm realizing that now. Yeah. To me, I think of you as like you're Warhol-esque. Because Andy Warhol was the same way. You think about, look at his drag queen images that, yeah. he did. that those were just his people they were in his world that was his reflection and he often said this i'm just mirroring my life i'm yes. not interesting it's the people around me i'm not saying you're not interesting but in the sense that all of his work was just kind of the same way
1: it, even now like early on i didn't know how much of myself i wanted to publicly reveal
0: oh that's a good point
1: right so I'm in a space now. where I'm opening up more,
0: I see. I'm yeah. starting to
1: open the, door, open the closet, open the windows, and just release it.
0: Because the world needs you. Really? <laughs> yes. Yes. Exactly.
1: <laughs> so I'm. I'm. That's where I'm at now.
0: The book kind of is the glue that tells the story of a lot of the threads.
1: Yes. Yeah, because even when I did my video, when I talked about each individual, that was so hard to get through. It was all kind of emotions was going through. And I, I had to, like, stop and pause the camera, like, wait, let me regroup, let me regroup, let me regroup. Yeah. Because this coming back like it was yesterday. But I think um, when we get to that point to do an exhibition sur- um, surrounded by the book and surrounded by those, those people, um, that's going to make me very happy.
0: It's interesting because you have archived your life with all these photographs as an artist, you're a cultural figure. I find Mm. that fascinating.
1: Before I took myself serious as an artist, I was still, you know, doing buttons, but I hadn't really challenged it to say, I am an artist. Right. It was like, uh, oh, I'm just doing these, this stuff for me. Like it was a hobby. He didn't own the identity. Right. So now I'm owning it. And ironic that he would say that to me, like who's going to be the last one to tell the story? Wow.
0: Who said that?
1: This, Trey said this.
0: Trey said that. Wow. <laughs> so do you feel like that's somewhat of a burden then?
1: No, I, I feel like it's more of a release because even though they're not here to experience all these magnificent things that are happening to me in my life right now, they will always be here with this yeah. project.
0: And if you believe spiritually, then they are here. Yeah.
1: Yes. Cause I think about them all the time.
0: Yeah. Like all
1: day, one of them pops up into my head and I think that, um, Some of them might be saying to themselves, well, why has he had to be the one to tell the story And not?
0: (laughs) It's so interesting because when you are living in the world, you have to figure out how you're going to live in that environment. And what you're talking about is being intentional, you know, figuring out who you are, what you like yourself to be, and then being that person. Because we're all moving about within a world. Mm -hmm. While we're on this earth, we're living in a physical world. We have to live here when we pass on, we're living in a spiritual world, but until then we're living in a physical world. So it's really a strategy for how you want to live your life and how you want to be who you are. It's the classic story of being individual and knowing your own self to the own self be true.
1: Because I, I describe my creativity is I'm documenting my life. Right. You know, so, you know, when I, cross over to the spirit world, hopefully, years from now, somebody will discover me and get something out of, you know, what I left behind.
0: Yeah, but that's happening now. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) This is what we're doing now. (laughs) Yeah. That's so so interesting, because I view my life as a storyteller for others. I feel like I am not the artist like you, but my artist is in recognizing and seeing people and knowing that that is my art i think that's just as important
1: mm-hmm. yeah it is it is and that's the art form in itself because you have to have a keen eye to select yes what you think is art and what the art means to you in your life
0: that's right and be able to tell it honestly yes Because that goes back to your point before, where a lot of people embellish, but knowing what the truth is, or the truth as relative as it can be, is Mm -hmm. being told accurately.
1: Yes. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Oh, philosophical. It's very true. Bo, I adore you. I feel like you are such a positive influence, and you are a, a well of knowledge.
1: I had a great time talking to you. Oh, thank you.